invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 15. Romans <coughs> chapter 15. Uh, thank you, Dr. Allen. As he mentioned, my name is Jason Dusing. For those of you who are new, uh, we welcome you here to Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College. Uh, I serve on the administrative side as provost, and I also teach the history classes. And provost means a lot of things. It's the number one question I get all the time. What exactly does that mean, and what do you do? And essentially, I uh, help uh, lead the academic division, work with the faculty, and, and a lot of other things. It essentially means a lot of meetings. Um, but as academic administrators, our team, we talk about what we do really is serving the institution as a form of institutional gravity, uh, that phrase institutional gravity, meaning we just seek to help hold all things together, to hold it down, uh, to make the trains run on time, uh, to serve you all. But like gravity, we delight also in being invisible. So um, our, our job is to help make things move, but to not stand out, uh, to, to get out of the way, and let you all uh, really learn from the faculty and benefit throughout your degree. So that's a short summary of what I do and why. Romans 15, I've entitled this message today, Recalibrating Your Ambition. The Apostle Paul, Adoniram Judson, and millions of people you don't yet know. Let me begin by asking you a question. It's a good question to ask anyone studying toward the completion of a degree, whether you're a college student or a graduate student or a doctoral student. And it's a good question to ask at this time of year, at the start of another academic year, one step closer to the completion of this goal of yours, one step closer to figuring out what God wants you to do for the rest of your life, one step closer in growing closer to the Lord. And that question is this, if it were possible for us to see inside your heart, to pull back every layer, every emotion, every desire, and really get to the core thing that drives you, what would we find? What is your core ambition? And if you're not sure, ask those who know you best. What would you say is my core ambition? What gets me up in the morning? Why am I pursuing this degree? What is it I'm wanting to do and why? Sometimes a way to get to the answer to that question is just to answer it in stages. What degree are you pursuing? Answer that. Why are you pursuing that degree? Answer that. What do you hope to do with that degree? Answer that. Why is it you're wanting to do that in that place with those people or in that task or that job? Keep asking those questions and answering it, and eventually you'll get down to the core driving ambition. The word ambition is actually a neutral term. It can be used for good or bad. Usually we mean it in a negative sense. That person is ambitious, and we mean that with an eyebrow raised and sort of a, you know, who does he or she think they are? C.S. Lewis said, in fact, that we must be careful what we mean by the word ambition. If it means the desire to get ahead of other people, then it's bad. If it means simply wanting to do a thing well, then it's good. So what matters most is really where your ambition is heading. Where is it pointed? Where is it taking you? Since the late 1980s and 1990s seemed to be a popular period of time once again, I marvel at the fascination of that time period that I lived through that now my children are trying to recreate somehow. Um, I want to make sure that this generation is aware of an important piece of contemporary Christian music from that era, 
and that is the 1988 hit by Michael W. Smith called Secret Ambition. If you haven't heard that song or seen the really amazing video, uh, you really should, as it will really give you a time capsule of all the glories of CCM music of that era. Um, and that said, in a, in a joking way, the message of the song is, is pretty good. Talking about Jesus, he says, nobody knew his secret ambition. Nobody knew his claim to fame. He broke the old rules steeped in tradition. He tore the holy veil away. Questioning those in powerful position, running to those who called his name, but nobody knew his secret ambition was to give his life away. And then if you know the song, there are a bunch of woe woes <laughs> and then a big electric guitar solo that just, you know, goes on and on for, for a long time. So you, you get the idea. So after chapel, Google that and have an enjoyable time watching that video um, over lunch. But it makes a good point. Jesus Christ had ambition. So what is your ambition? If you peel back all those layers, what do you find that drives you? And if you're not sure and you're not satisfied with what you find, then what I have to say in the next few minutes is really designed to help. And it's 100% normal for you to be sitting in these seats pursuing some sort of degree and not fully even really having all that worked out. You, you know what got you here, but you don't really know what's going to happen next or even why. Well, I hope this text and the story of a life of Adoniram Judson helps calibrate that for you, recalibrating your ambition. So Romans 15, here at the tail end of a truly magnificent and magisterial letter of Paul's to the Romans, Paul here in these final chapters is giving practical explanations to conclude what really is this massive work of theology. And it is a beautiful work in that. So he spent time in previous chapters explaining what is the gospel. And in this chapter, chapter 15, Paul shows how he intends to come to see the believers he's writing to in Rome, though he doesn't plan to stay, but desires to press on and go on to Spain. So Paul is saying here, I have more work to do. I'm ambitious to do more things. So what I want you to, what I want to do looking at the part of chapter 15 I want to look at is throw, show three parts of the Apostle Paul's ambition and then use a very special figure from church history to bring that to life. And that's the story of the ambitious life of the 19th century pioneer missionary from America, Adoniram Judson. So by doing this, I want to argue that it's this kind of ambition, Paul's ambition, Judson's ambition, that isn't just reserved for them. It's an ambition to be shared by all Christians, all people who love the name of Christ. Indeed, it should be our core ambition. It should be what's getting us up every day and driving us to do what God has called us to do. So first, who is this Adoniram Judson? Well, just over 200 years ago, Judson, along with his wife, Anne, became one of the first missionary couples to leave America for the purpose of taking the gospel to those who have never heard it before in the country of Burma. For nearly four decades, from 1812 till his death in 1850, Judson would labor in Burma, present-day Myanmar, preaching the gospel. And through the course of that time, he would see the passing of his wife, Anne, several children, a second wife, Sarah, and many other tragedies along the way. But in the end, he would give the Burmese the first translation of the Bible in their own language that he translated and leave a legacy of seeing the first Burmese to follow Christ. And that legacy actually still exists today in the country of Myanmar. 
But a man who left such a legacy and sacrifice didn't start out with a heart for these people or even a heart for God. He was very ambitious and very gifted, but ambitious in C.S. Lewis's bad sense for his own fame, not for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So let's look at Romans 15, and then we'll look at Judson, and we'll go through three parts in that way to challenge us to consider what is our secret ambition. So first, we see in verses 17 through 19 that Paul is simply saying he has fulfilled the ministry of the gospel where he is. Remember, he's writing to these believers in Rome. He's saying he's coming to them and going on to Spain, and he's saying, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel where I am. So I'm leaving there and coming to, to you. Read along with me uh, as I read aloud verse 17 through 19. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Here we see that Paul is simply explaining that he has fulfilled the ministry of the gospel where he is. He says, in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. And before we unpack even what he's talking about here, let's not miss the point. The, the thing that's happening here is that Paul is doing actually a very unique thing for Paul. He's boasting. And if you know anything about Paul, he has a whole theology about boasting, which is, in short, don't boast. Don't, don't do that. If you boast about anything, Paul says, you boast in the Lord. Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not supposed to boast, but here in Romans 15.17, Paul is boasting. He's saying, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. But he explains what he means by this pride in verses 18 and 19. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to, to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. These little passing phrases here, these descriptors, are showing that Paul's ministry consisted not only of proclaiming the word, certainly that was the core of what he was doing, but also showing how he lived his life as he proclaimed the word. He references all the supernatural things that God had done to accompany his work and his ministry, and he is saying he has every reason to be proud of this work. Why? because God alone had done it. God's the one who's done it. God's the reason why he can say he's fulfilled it. And it's the reason he can say that he's proud of it. But we know that Paul wasn't always thinking this way, putting God at the center, giving God the glory and the credit, uh, being able to stand in a sense of accomplishment because of what God has done. At first, in Paul's own life, when he was called Saul, was ambitious for other things. There was a time when he was Saul and he was persecuting Christians until he met Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. And he had his ambition crucified, to put it mildly, redirected. And such was the same with the life of our example missionary, Adoniram Judson. The story of Judson's formative years is the story, really, of the work of the Spirit of God on a man's life by using the sharp instrument of the Word of God. Prior to Judson's conversion at age 20, he was had a very manifest, unregenerate ambition. It opposed the spirit and the word at every turn. Judson was all about himself. Born in 1788 outside of Boston to a Congregationalist family, his father was a pastor of a Congregationalist church. It was clear from the, an early age that Judson was 
incredibly gifted. By the age of 10, he was fluent in English, of course, Greek, and Latin. And the book that he later would translate into the Burmese language, the Bible, was never far from him, even though he drifted far from it and resisted it, just given his home life. His remarkable abilities were really fanned into a competitive ambition by his father. His father didn't really help his own pride and sense of self-accomplishment, uh, really pushed him toward academic achievement, and it caused Judson to really seek out a life of personal gain and personal glory. He would go on to college early in what's now known as Brown University and would graduate uh, early at the top of his class. While in college, much like many college students do at many universities around the country, he was able to throw off the trappings of his parents' Christian faith, and he became enamored with a new philosophy that was quite faddish and popular among students, and really following the ringleader of an older student named Jacob Eames, he embraced what we know now as deism. Deistic philosophy had made its inroads into New England really during the Revolutionary War. And so by the time Judson went to Brown in the early 1800s, late 1700s, early 1800s, this anti-Christian philosophy was not only readily available, but it was seen as intellectually superior. And it was sought after by people like Judson with ambitious minds. So Judson graduated college, and upon his return home, he was so enlightened, he, his head was too big to fit through the front door, and metaphorically, and uh, he could not really find comfort at home with his parents. There was a lot of conflict, and so after a time, Judson, much like the prodigal son, left town on what he would later call an undisciplined tour of the surrounding states. And that undisciplined lifestyle led to immorality, led to a lot of things, but really just sinking his own pleasures, and eventually he made his way down to New York City, where he sought to become a playwright, a, an occupation in which he could garner an immense amount of fame and attention. His ambition was driving him that way. While traveling one evening, Judson was lodging at a small inn, and the caretaker explained that he had to place Judson in a room, sorry, uh, next to a man who was gravely ill and possibly dying. So inns in the early 1800s was not your local Hampton Inn or a courtyard by Marriott, but were really more a hostile-type environment, just a place to rest your head. And so walls are thin. You're able to hear what's going on in the rooms to rooms. And Judson's like, thank you. I'm just glad to have a room for the night. And, but the prospect that a man in the adjacent room might actually be dying really got under Judson's skin and really disturbed him, and it caused him not to be able to sleep because he was hearing all throughout the nights the comings and going people trying to care for this person who is, from the sounds of it, incredibly sick. And it led to Judson to begin asking questions of himself. I haven't quite thought about death in some time. Am I ready to die? And the philosophy of deism could not answer those questions for him, and they certainly couldn't calm his fears and help him in any way. And as the night went on, he grew more and more embarrassed that he was having this intellectual time of weakness. And he began to consider how his good friend Jacob Eames might mock him or make fun of him for having this moment of doubt. How can you not? All your thoughts, you've got to hold them together. You're smarter than this. You shouldn't be persuaded by things like feelings and be persuaded by just the thought of someone dying next to you. Well, the morning came and Judson dismissed his nightmares with the light of dawn and asked the caretaker of the inn, about the ill man. You can see him just sort of inquiring on his way out, turning in his key. And 
Judson's future son and one of his biographers record, records the record of what happened. The innkeeper or the caretaker says, well, he is dead. And Judson says, dead? Yes, he is gone, uh, poor fellow. The doctor said he probably wouldn't survive the night, and he didn't. Judson says, do you, well, do you know who he was? And the caretaker says, oh, yes, he was a young man from up at the university, from Brown, a very fine fellow. His name was Eames, Jacob Eames. Judson was completely sunned. One, one thought occupied his mind, the word dead and the word lost. Lost were continually ringing in his ears. He knew the religion of the Bible was out there, but he wasn't sure quite what to do with it. And so for the first time in his life, Judson suspended his plans to drive home his own ambition and was awakened and decided to go back home and began to face a growing conviction of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. He gained counsel from his parents and several others, and over time, he just could not match his intellectual questions with what he was coming to see as what the true claims of the Bible. And so his father encouraged him to seek out other pastors and some men who were teaching at the seminary to help him work through his intellectual questions. And after several months, Judson finally relented and confessed that all he had obtained in life and much of what he regarded as truth was without value. The Spirit of God through the Word of God had worked to overcome Judson's ambition and put him, like the Apostle Paul, on that road to Damascus on a brand new path. Well, what was that new path? Well, specifically, it was a passion and ambition to take the gospel to those who have never heard. Look back at verse 19 of Romans 15. Here, Paul concludes with an intriguing statement saying here specifically that the ministry he's had over the years has been fulfilled. He's saying, it is done. It is over. And you all have perhaps reached those points in your life where you can get to a place and saying, okay, that's done. It's, it's over. And it might be a time of celebration. Our own beloved Spurgeon College Dean Beerig said this to me after he defended his PhD dissertation this summer. It is complete. It is over. It is done. And thus the culmination of years of hard work have now been completed. But for Paul to say this, the ministry is done, it's fulfilled, is an odd thing to say. Look at what he's saying here. He's saying, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. What he's doing here is giving us a geography lesson. He mentions Jerusalem, a city, a town, and a place that hopefully all of us could locate on a map. And then he mentions Illyricum, a city, town, and place that probably none of us could place on a map. So let me give you some sense of the geographic region he's talking about here. He's saying in this region from Jerusalem to Illyricum, the ministry has been fulfilled. So if you take the Mediterranean Sea and all the countries that surround it, and you take that and you lift it up and you overlay it on the United States of America, and let's say that the city in America that is the equivalent of Jerusalem is Atlanta, Georgia, well, Illyricum would be the equivalent distance, give or take, of right here in Kansas City, Missouri. So Paul is saying basically from, if you follow with me here, Atlanta all the way around to Kansas City, and the word here for all the way around is the idea of a circle. He's drawing a circle that includes the two cities, Atlanta to Kansas City. What Paul is saying is that the furthest east I've ever been, Jerusalem, and the furthest west I've ever been, Illyricum, all the way around that, the ministry has been fulfilled. Everywhere I've been, Paul's saying, up until this point in my life, the ministry has been fulfilled. He's fully preached the gospel of Christ. 
The idea here, of course, is not that every person in that region, as big as it is, is now a Christian. We know that's not the case, but he is saying that all people in this region now have what? Access to the gospel. He's saying, I've sown the seeds and churches have been started and there are preachers there who will continue the work and are going to continue the work so that everyone in this huge region has now has access to the gospel of Christ. The gospel has been preached here. The ministry has been fulfilled and therefore it's now what? Self-sustaining. So in our language today, we would call that region now reached and no longer unreached, even though there's tons of work still to do in that region. The issue is access to the gospel. So if you follow where I'm going up to this point, and even using the use, the use of Adonai Judson, I'm not going to be ending today in just a few minutes by saying that everyone in this room needs to be a cross-cultural ministry, and you're nothing if you don't leave here and go somewhere to the ends of the earth. I'm not saying that because Paul, even in this argument, is not saying that. Implicitly, he's saying, look, there are people who have stayed behind to continue the work, and those people need to be doing that, and God has them there for that purpose. That's not the point. The point is, is those people, what is their ambition? What is their trajectory? How are they continuing to fund and to send people like Paul? So we see here that Paul has fulfilled the ministry where he is. Number two, starting in verse 20, we see Paul desires not to continue to preach where Christ is already named. And here we see the use of the word ambition. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. In Romans 15, 20, we see Paul's desire not to continue to preach where Christ is already named. He says, I make it my ambition to preach specifically where Christ hasn't been named. He's speaking as clearly as he can. The gospel has been fulfilled and preached here. I'm not going to stay there anymore. I'm going to let somebody else build upon that foundation. I'm going to take the gospel to where he is not known. We see that that is his driving ambition. And the word ambition here carries this context of he's making it his aim. It's showing exactly where he is focused. So when I talked at the beginning about if you peel away all the layers of your heart, what is your core and secret ambition? This is Paul's. This is Paul's. And of course, it's also Judson. My ambition is not only to preach the gospel, but to do it where Christ has not been named. That is his secret ambition. Paul is saying, also, I'm, I'm here to preach the gospel. We shouldn't just glance over that phrase, the gospel. It's a phrase we use and have heard and read and we believe. But don't mistake the relevance of what is happening here by him mentioning it in the Bible himself. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is actually saying, I am preaching the gospel. That is what I'm doing. I'm actually preaching the gospel. It's a thing to do. It's a thing one must do. It's a thing to convey. And if you just take Paul's letters alone and examine him explaining what is the gospel, Paul believes that in all of humanity, every single person falls into two simple categories. There are people who are lost and people from sa who are saved. And apart from this gospel that he is preaching, no one has hope and they are without God, he tells us in Ephesians. Paul spells this out very clearly, and he says the only way you can move from being a lost person to a saved person is not through a righteousness of your own, he says in Romans 3, for there is no one who is righteous. But while we're all unrighteous in our sin, he says in Romans 5, Christ died for us in, over, in order to give us his alien righteousness, his foreign righteousness. So to move from a position of being judged by God for your sins to a position of being absolved by God because your sins are forgiven through Christ comes only when you have Christ's righteousness, Paul says in Philippians 3. The imputed righteousness of Christ comes as a glorious free gift, even though we've all sinned, Romans 3. 
And in Romans 10, Paul says that if you confess with your mouth and believe that Jesus is Lord in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you'll be what? You'll be saved. You'll move from being lost to saved. You'll be found. Paul says the proclamation of this gospel is the only way people can be saved. So for the billions of people on earth, the millions of people you have not yet met, the only way they can be saved is if they hear this gospel. And they're still lost until they hear this gospel, repent of their sins, and receive this beautiful robe of Christ's righteousness. So we have two kinds of people in the world, lost and saved. And the only way from going to being lost to being saved is to hear the message of Jesus and believe in it and have Christ's righteousness. So the natural question should arise, how are all these millions of people going to hear this great message? Well, Paul explains in Romans 10 that the people of the world will not hear unless someone goes and tells them. And that's exactly what was the burden of Judson's mind and heart. God took Judson's ambition and harnessed it recalibrated it for God's glory and his gospel. Judson went to seminary to continue to be trained and to work through things. And while he's there, he's reading, compelled to read, the diary of David Brainerd, uh, written by Jonathan Edwards. And there is a growing awareness of the work of the missionary, English missionary, William Carey, among the students. And so he's aware of that. But it wasn't until Judson read a sermon by an English preacher in 1809 that it changed everything for him, and his ambition became clear. He was reading this sermon, which is essentially a call and a compelling call for people to leave their country and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Judson would later say that that sermon is what God used to enable me, listen to this, to break the strong attachment I felt to home and country. What dislodged me, that what recalibrated my ambition, what moved me on a new path was that preaching of the word, It enabled me to break the strong attachment I had to home and country. What was holding Judson back from following God and doing exactly what God had him to do was a strong attachment to home and country. That sermon had, he said, a powerful effect on my mind. And from that moment forward, all I could think about was missions. So Judson went out from there. He and his wife Anne were commissioned, and they were sent out in 1812 um, and headed to the country of Burma. Third point and final point, Paul's ambition to preach to those who have never heard. Paul's ambition clearly is to preach to those who have never heard. Verse 21, Romans 15, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul's ambition to preach the gospel was wrapped up first in his understanding of what is the gospel. He then understood that, and then it required him to press on to take it to those who have never heard. Paul does an interesting thing here in these verses. He lifts up Isaiah 52. Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. He's reaching back into the Old Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to those wonderful chapters of Isaiah 52 and 53, where Isaiah is foretelling of the great suffering servant, the Messiah, who will come. Paul's acknowledging with this that with the coming of Jesus Christ, the day foretold in Isaiah has now come. These people who have never heard the Messiah, they've never heard, but they're going to hear. He lifts up verse 15 of Isaiah 52 and puts it in place in his context, and it drives him to take the gospel to those who have never heard. This was Paul's ambition, and it was Judson's as well. The concluding things about Judson's life as we see him carry out his ambition, but at great cost. We see him briefly that his ambition required courage and conviction. On the way to uh, first India and then Myanmar, Judson is studying the Bible because he knows he's going to meet the great William Carey. Judson was not a Baptist and did not believe in believer's baptism by immersion. 
And he's studying the Bible and wrestling with it because he thinks he's going to have to defend his belief of infant baptism to Carrie. By the time he gets there, he's wrestling with the scriptures to the degree that he's convinced himself that he's wrong and Carrie is right. And he abandons his belief in infant baptism. Furthermore, Anne, a, a, a missionary in her own right, comes to that conviction as well. And she writes home to her parents after this period of wrestling. She says, my dear parents and sisters, we are now both confirmed Baptists, not because we wish to be, but because the truth compelled us to be. And they're following the scriptures to this place. It requires courage and conviction, and this is why. Judson had just mobilized all these Congregationalist churches to send him. He now arrives in India and basically just cuts off that lifeline over doctrinal conviction. No longer needing, saying, I can't take your money anymore. I'm not going to be planting Congregationalist churches. That requires a great deal of courage and conviction. Judson's ambition always require, also required a great deal of patience and suffering. I alluded to it earlier, but his whole life is just full of tragedy after tragedy while he perseveres and tries to translate the scripture. He, he met, he was married and married twice, both and widowed twice, both wives die. They had numbers of children who were either stillborn or died in infancy or at a young age due to the challenging context that was in Burma. Judson was arrested and nearly died if it weren't for his wife who saved him. All through this, it required great patience and suffering. It took them six years before they saw a Burmese person first come to Christ, but yet he faithfully labored, believing that translating the scriptures into a language people can understand and read would have a transformative effect. Finally, Judson's ambition required a lifetime of perseverance. After his second wife passed, Judson would return at the end of his life to the States to put his children in school, and eventually met and married a third lady, and then they go back. And through the course of his entire life, he would see the translation of both the Old and New Testament, the entire Bible, which many Burmese churches still use today, finally completed. The result is, is that 210 years ago, Judson left America, and by 1850, he had survived imprisonment, deep personal tragedy, and many hardships. But he left the people of Burma with the gospel and a copy of the Bible in their own language that people who had never heard had now finally heard. So what does this mean today for you and me? Well, let me ask you a few obvious questions. Has the gospel or is the gospel preached where you live or where you hope to live? Do people in that area regularly have access to the gospel at any time? Is that a place where Christ is regularly named? Do people have easy access to the gospel? Could they get it if they wanted it? Conversely, are there still people in the world who have never heard the gospel, never heard the name of Christ? Let me briefly describe the need for the gospel in the world. The IMB, the International Mission Board, divides the world into eight cultural affinity groups. In documents across the world, there are roughly still 3,215 unengaged and unreached people groups that comprise about 283 million people. There are many people who haven't been reached. This is the, the cream of the crop, if you will, the people who have never been engaged with the gospel. They've never, ever, ever heard the gospel, 283 million people. As one example, among North Africa and Middle East peoples, of the 600 million people there, 115 million people are unengaged, unreached, 
Yet there are reports, even among with these unbalanced percentages of amazing things happening, beginning to happen in those regions with the gospel, because people have left this country and other countries to take the gospel to them. And in pockets of some of these places, there are churches forming and teaching and leadership development taking place. There's, the bottom line is this is a wonderful time to go and to reach and to teach. But the need is great and the task is great. Romans 15 reveals the clear ambition, I think, that all Christians and all churches should share Until Jesus returns, believers should be laboring to support a prioritized effort to get the gospel to all people. These are the millions of people you don't yet know that need to hear the gospel. Reaching them was Paul's ambition. It was Judson's ambition. And I think if you peel back all the layers of your heart, that's what you should find as your ambition as well. Some of you, God is preparing to carry out this task within the context of the United States, to be senders and leaders and supporters with the trajectory of helping fulfill the gospel to the ends of the earth. Some of you are, I think, actually brought here to this campus for this period of time to figure this out. And you may thought you were coming in here to go to some city in the States. God means for you to come to this place to actually go to somewhere like Tokyo instead. Somewhere like Cairo instead. Somewhere you haven't even thought of in your wildest dreams. But my point is that wherever God takes you, the implication for all of us is to live out this ambition, this directive to missions, to see his name literally spread to the ends of the earth. That is really why you're here. Don't get distracted by that. Don't get distracted from from that main task, from that main ambition. And it's easy to do in this context because you're loving what you're learning. If you study with Dr. John Lee, you'll learn the Greek language and you'll be able to read the Bible in the original language. And as great and needed as that is, that's a foundational building block to aid you in carrying out our ultimate ambition. That is not the ultimate ambition. If you study theology with Matthew Barrett, you will find out the joys and the beauty of how central the doctrine of God is to all the rest of all the other doctrines. And though understanding and knowing God is central, knowing systematic theology, and don't don't confuse the two, is a needed foundation to equip you to carry out the ultimate ambition. That's not... Studying theology is not the ultimate ambition. If you study with Jared Wilson, you'll learn the joys of gospel centrality and fellowship with Jesus. And knowing these things are essential for your life, for your sanctification and your salvation. But in the context of your education, they are also equipping disciplines to aid you in the larger ultimate task of what churches are supposed to be working to do, reaching the world with the gospel of Christ. Don't let your study here redirect your ambition to take you off the mark. Don't love studying for studying's sake. Move beyond it. See it as equipping you to do this ultimate thing. All of your professors, that's why they're here. That's really what for the church means. So for you, for churches, for all people, to have this ambition will require, like Judson, courage and conviction, sacrifice and suffering, a lifetime of perseverance. But the great joy of it all is that Jesus is right there with you and will help you. He started a good work in you and will finish it. If you seek first his kingdom with joy, you'll finish the race with his strength. So if you peel back all the layers of the heart, of your heart, what do you find? What is your secret ambition? As Paul saw and Judson saw, there's no greater ambition to to have than to see God's great, great name known among all the peoples of the earth until he returns. And if you don't see that as your ambition yet, that is okay. But that might be exactly why you're here. So I encourage you.
to think about that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time to gather as Dr. Allen prayed at the beginning to truly to worship you. It's a privilege and a blessing. I pray you'd help us to be good stewards of it. Fill us with joy for this great task. I pray you just clear away cobwebs, clear away weeds, clear away the distractions of our own heart and plant in us just a firm conviction that I know why you've left me here on earth. I know what you've called me to do and where to carry that out, but I know even more why. And I want to spend the rest of my life helping churches and helping people, and even if you call, participating in the great task of getting the gospel to those who have never heard. In Jesus' name, amen.